If you're listening to these services, you are listening to the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the Sunday morning message. And we continue our study in the Beatitudes, approaching Matthew chapter number 5 and verses 10 through 12. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 10 through 12. We invite you to follow along. I hope you have your Bible handy. I trust that you do. Matthew chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse number 1, as we have done looking at each one of these Beatitudes. And approaching especially verse number 10, if you would be so kind to read out loud verse number 10 when we get to it, for emphasis. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. The Holy Scriptures recording about our Lord and Savior. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Read verse 10 out loud with me. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Lord, I pray that you would do your work this morning in our hearts and lives. I come to your word with humility. Lord, this is one of the most difficult of this sermon that I've had to preach as of yet. I pray that you would help me to expound your divine truth, that your people would be fed by your word as sheep of your fold, hearing your voice and being drawn and coming unto you. Lord, not to a preacher, not to a church, not to baptismal waters necessarily just for that sake, but to come to Jesus and to come to His feet, to be drawn to Him and then to follow Him as the Spirit would lead, which would inevitably lead through the baptismal waters and to a fellowship of a congregation of like-minded believers. Lord, I ask that You would strengthen my voice this morning that you would do your work in and through me, hide me behind the cross, and may I be an encouragement and edification to build up your people as I preach your most holy word. And I ask your help divinely for unction and grace and power, power beyond a human demonstration, but a demonstration of spirit and power, that we would know that this word has been from you as we consider your holy scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I mentioned in my prayer, this has been one of the most challenging of all the Beatitudes that I've studied. I think I've read this, I don't know how many times in my Christian life, and not had it really transform me and transform my thinking the way that it has through this exposition and through this 
pursuit of what Jesus is saying here. I've heard great messages on it. I've read great sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, particularly on this beatitude. And I could point you to some of those resources, and they would they would certainly be an encouragement and edification to you uh, if you if you're seeking the Spirit's leading. But there is a reason why I believe this is one of the most difficult. It is the culmination of Jesus' introduction. Now remember, we call this a sermon. It's not listed as a sermon here, but we know it as God's people as the Sermon on the Mount, much like we know the disciples' prayer as the Lord's Prayer, and I call it the disciples' prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We, We have key terms that we identify certain segments of Scripture with. Well, Jesus is teaching. It says He opened His mouth and He taught them. We know this to be the Sermon on the Mount. So, in a discourse, especially in this day and time, you're going to have the key elements that you would look for. You know, when I was in homiletics class, we had to do this, and we had to put together our message, we had to study the passage, and then we had to have an introduction, and we had to have our main thought, we had to have our proposition, we had to have our body, we had to have our outline, and we had to have our, our application points, and our illustrations, and our conclusion, and all of it together, and, you know, you try to do the best you can, and when you get through... Oh, you go back and you watch those videotapes and you say, oh, what a terrible, terrible presentation. And those are growth moments, right? And they help each one of us. And I'm sure that um, public speaking is is something that can be worked on with human effort. It's something that can be honed. But I'll tell you, communication really is the key. And Jesus is communicating a message here. This is his introduction. He's introducing the disciples and the multitudes with an earshot where he's going. Now, I don't know if I would be so bold as to make this claim and put it in stone, but if Jesus had something that he was going to say as a main thought that we need to have undergirding the rest of what he's going to say in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, this introduction would be gearing us toward that. And I would also submit to you that verses 10 through 12 would be one of his main thoughts to whet our appetite to where the sermon's going. What is this thought? It simply is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus is going to teach on this in other places. In fact, he's going to tell his followers, and John is going to give us some of this insight in the upper room. John's going to let us know that Jesus said, the world hates me. Speaking of himself. The world hates me. And if it hates me, it's going to hate you for following me. Well, let's think about what Jesus is saying here in his very first discourse, his very first sermon, as he begins his public ministry. He's gone through healing. He's, he's helped so many people. And he's gained an audience with them. He has one rapport with the people. They're questioning in their hearts and minds. They're wondering, is this the next Moses? Is this that prophet that he prophesied would come? We're up on a mountain. We're receiving this, this uh, in essence, kingdom law, as uh, some good dispensationalists have called it. And Jesus here is giving these words. And every ear is upon him. Every eye is, is raptured with what he's going to say next. And as he goes through the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, the mournful, the meek, the hungry and thirsty for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers, each one of these building blocks leads up to this eighth and I believe final beatitude because verses 11 and 12 are going to give us some further insight into this one. You're not going to be in verse 10 
until you've made it through verse 3 through 9. Until you have internalized, and again, as we've illustrated, like a, like a child learning to walk for his first steps, and the Father in Heaven looking down and being pleased with us as we strive to live up to this, knowing our, sin, our sinfulness, knowing His perfection. We are called to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. And yet, how many times does a just man fall, the Scripture saying, rises again? And so we go and we, we work on being poor in spirit. We work on mourning over our sin. We know we're destitute before God. But we know there's areas where we need to be more meek in our lives. But we try to condition our words and think before we speak a little better than we did the last time we tasted shoe leather. All of these things we work on and we hone and we say, I want to be more like Jesus. I'm striving to look more like Him tomorrow and today than I did yesterday. That's part of the predestinated plan of God. And yes, I did use that word. It's okay. It's a biblical word. Predestination is in the Bible. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The image that was marred in Adam is sinful and disgraceful and fallen short of glory. The image that is in Christ is full of beauty and holiness and perfection. And we strive to attain that. This is the process of sanctification. When we get to heaven, we'll be glorified. And yet all of God's people will fit this description in the millennial reign. I believe that. These are promises for a true follower of Jesus. That this is what transforms us. This is what makes us so different. And yet, this is one of the most difficult Beatitudes because I think there are so few people, myself included, many times I look over my life and say, you know, I really don't know what persecution really is. I don't. I don't know if I understand what it is to be reviled the way that I read about some people being reviled in the Scriptures. Just for standing for the truth. This beatitude is the most difficult, I believe, because it is the culmination. It is the result. If you look at it, it's different from the others, isn't it? Is it not structured a little bit different? We still have the three aspects. There's there's the promise of the blessedness and and there's the, the description of that. There's the reward. There's the three elements that's in a beatitude. But this one is different because it's not focused on a positive promise necessarily. It's focused on something that the world's going to give back to us. Let's think about the beatitudes in general. We started by looking at them and learning to lean on the Lord with the first four beatitudes, transforming us from the inside and out. This would be that vertical cleansing. This would be that vertical relationship between us and God restored through Jesus Christ. Then we looked at learning to live for the Lord. Leaning on the Lord and living for the Lord. When we're right with Him, it's going to manifest outwardly. We're going to be meek. We're going to be peacemakers. And it's going to influence our relationships with people around us. But Jesus is so masterful in this. He doesn't stop there. He gets us right this way. And He tells us it'll make us right this way. Outwardly. But then he says, there's a response coming back. We give out, and we give, and we, we sacrifice, and we give ourselves. There's a response to expect from those who do not see the truth like Jesus has brought us along to be able to behold it. And I trust that I'm going to be able to share some things with you this morning and not be casting pearls before swine. Because you know the Lord, 
You're following Him and these are sweet treasures to you. These are precious things because you can see your Savior suffering. And as we, we heard in the song, resting safely. One day, all of this will be over. If I was going to follow the trend of modern day preaching, then I might bring you a, an, you know, an encouraging message that would say, you know, everything's going to be smooth sailing from here. I'd come pat you on the back and wrap my hand, you know, arm around your shoulder in a loving way and say it's going to be all right. You know, the sun's coming up tomorrow, and I just. But I would just be breezing right over what Jesus said here. I can tell you this. As the song says, I don't know, I don't know about tomorrow, but I know who holds tomorrow. And he's the one that's telling me I need to expect something from the world. I need to expect those who don't understand scriptural truth to react in a way that maybe sometimes is harsh. I wish that I could tell you, you know, if you just give your life to Jesus and everybody's going to be your friend and it's going to be smooth sailing. No. If I did that, I, I would not be scriptural. I would be twisting and resting the scriptures to my own destruction. Jesus said, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I've simply taken these words and used them as my title for this morning. For righteousness' sake, for my sake, meaning Jesus. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I think we need to understand what this is entailing. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've noticed... <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. You've noticed the inclusio, the book ends. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which indicates that this is encapsulated the poor in spirit and persecuted for righteousness sake, this is the Beatitudes segment. Now, as we consider Matthew in particular and the opening of the New Testament, we remember Jesus is in Galilee. And the Jewish people have been blessed by God in their past history. He brought them out of Egypt with a strong and mighty arm. And He delivered them through the Red Sea he led them into the promised land. And they went forth and conquered only as much as their faith would allow them to. Many of them died in unbelief, being mixed in their congregation. Thank you. You're a blessing. You're a blessing to them so they don't have to listen to me cough too much. He led them. He led them every step of the way. And, and some of them didn't get it. There were murmurs, there were complainers. The Jewish people had had the Lord reach out to them time and time again. Even from the very beginning, God warned them. He made a covenant with them, and, and they all stood right there in that day when He gave them the Mosaic Law and gave them this covenant based on the promises of Abraham. He, he said, I'll take you into that land. I'll bless you. It'll be yours, and everything will be fine, and my blessing will be upon you. But in the day that you break this covenant, what was the covenant? That the Mosaic Law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Just go right down the list. The very people who stood there that day said, yes, we will. 
Put my name to it. This is our covenant. This is Israel's covenant with Jehovah. We're going to keep this. That very, almost within moments, Moses is coming down the mountainside. Joshua meets him halfway as he's coming down. Joshua's concerned because it sounds like there's a contemporary church service going on now. Okay, that was just... Forgive me. Sounds like, Joshua said this way, he said there's a noise of war in the camp. Sounds like there's fighting going on. We need to get down there, Moses. You know the rest of the story. Moses says, no, it's not war. It's not fighting. That's the sound of them just doing their heart's lust. They can't control themselves. And he gets down and read the description. It's pretty vivid. I mean, they just have no self-control. And then Aaron's words are always classic, right? We always laugh at those. Well, they gave me all their earrings and all their gold, and I threw them in the fire, and out poof came a calf. And, you know, they're all dancing around it. They actually named it Jehovah, that calf. We want not what has become of Moses. Make us a calf that we may worship. Make us, make us a God. Aaron, and Aaron, you know, he gave in to the people. From day one, from day one, Israel did not measure up to their end of the covenant. That'd be like a husband and wife standing before witnesses and before God saying, yeah, we're going to love each other for, for the rest of our lives till death goes and on the very wedding day, instead of going to the honeymoon, the husband or the wife, whatever partner goes off and is already, already committing adultery before the first wedding day is even over. I mean, if that doesn't make you sick to your stomach, you need to have a gut check and you need to have your conscience maybe restored to, to righteousness. It's wrong. So God made this promise with them. <laughs> Jehovah did. They failed to meet it. God, how many years did He allow Israel to go on and call them back? He sent prophet after prophet to them. Prophet after prophet. And they turned a deaf ear and they said, no, we don't want God's way. We're going to do it our way. Occasionally they would turn around and say, yeah, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You know, when fire falls from heaven or they haven't had rain in three years or you know, God's done something drastic or something actually wakes them up from their stupor of sinful lust. But it's not long before they're right back out into it again. And God warned them. And He said, judgment is coming. Judgment. That's the message that is unpalatable to us today because we want to say everything is fine, everything's okay. Judgment is on the doorstep. And if America does not wake up then we will too suffer God's judgment. When we walk away from His righteous principles, when we as God's people, I'm, t- I'm speaking specifically to Christianity by and large, Christendom, I use that term loosely. When we think of, of Christians today, how many of them are walking truly the straight and narrow path? How many have given into this broad way that Jesus Himself said leads to destruction? And we're mixed, we're intermingled, we're tainted, if we could hear our Savior, He would say, the door is still open. You can walk wholeheartedly with Him. Now, please don't misunderstand me. We, we're not under a covenant like Israel was. Okay, we need to establish that fact and make sure we understand that clearly. The church has not replaced Israel. We're not going to go into the promised land and, and possess it like is promised to the nation of Israel. One day. Israel, that's for them. And God's still going to meet that promise. And we as Gentile believers are grafted into that. 
Okay, we get to enjoy the spiritual blessings of all the promises that was made to Abraham. And I'm a child of God through Abraham by faith. Not by birth lineage because I'm a Gentile, but by faith. I can receive the blessings of God's peace upon me. I receive the blessings of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I receive all of these precious, wonderful things that the New Testament unfolds God is doing in my life. And yet, Hebrews 12 reminds me that if I'm not careful in how I walk and follow the Lord, I too, when I'm mixed with unbelief, in my pursuit of Jesus, when I, when I doubt, when I waver, when I'm, I'm tossed with the wind, as James puts it, when I walk unstably, when I am lured away, I too receive the chastening hand of God because He's a loving Father and He's not going to let me continue on a path that's going to lead to my ultimate destruction. What father would? A father disciplines because he loves his children. He wants the best for them. He might let them get away with something and stretch things for a little while, but it's not long. If they cross the line, and dad knows where that line is, and so does the so does the child, the line is crossed, then a loving father disciplines because it's necessary in love to bring back in the confines. Israel is sitting at the feet of Jesus. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came unto the Jews first. Remember, Paul said the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here he is with a Jewish audience in northern Israel. And he is pouring forth these Beatitudes. This group of people that he's speaking to have already been judged by God and dispersed throughout the world according to the prophecies of Daniel and Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we're going to look at him. We're going to look at another prophet as well if I have time this morning. These men stood up in a day not unlike ours. And they called God's people in a way that many preachers, not, not unlike what I'm doing with you this morning, they stood forth before God's people, not the world. They stood before God's children and said, Repent. It's time to turn around. It's time to come back to Jehovah. And sometimes the message was received, as it was with Micah, as Nineveh did. You know, Nineveh is not Jewish people, understand it. But as Jonah preached and Nineveh got saved, sometimes people hear, and they do. Jesus is talking to a group of people who have been promised wonderful things by God, have broken their end of that covenant, have been dispersed and judged by God, and now they're looking for hope that this is going to be the one. This is going to be the man. He's going to bring us back. This is the beginning of the restoration of all those promises. This is the son of David. He's the one that's going to rule and reign on the throne. And he's going to restore and reestablish us as Israel in the world. That's their understanding. I think they missed a crucial part. Because Jesus says here, Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The message of John the Baptist. He broke the 400 years of silence. Israel hadn't heard from God since Malachi. And the Old Testament closed with silence from heaven for 400 years. And then John the Baptist comes with his message that breaks the silence. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now pastor, what's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Don't get confused. Just look at the simplicity of Scripture. 
When you study the kingdom of heaven, Strong's Concordance can help you with this, and I'm being serious with this. Just look up how many times the kingdom of heaven occurs and where it occurs. Matthew is the one who talks about the kingdom of heaven more than any, and mostly in Matthew. The kingdom of God is, is general. So I would submit to you, I believe they're synonymous. And there's aspects in which we see the kingdom of God in our lives today, but there's ultimately a fulfillment that's coming for the kingdom of Christ and His millennial reign. But the kingdom of God, He's, he's ultimately over all. So don't let those terms confuse you. But John the Baptist's message was, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 3. The kingdom was coming in the person of the Savior. Old Vance Habner said it this way, It was a spiritual kingdom. The reign of God in the hearts of men. Kingdom is coming soon. It will be a visible kingdom when the King returns. And once again, our message should be, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ's message to the church for this hour, Old Habner used to say, is repent. That was in his day, and it's still the message for our day. But he, he applied it this way. Who dares, who dares to call the average Sunday morning congregation to repentance? Said Joseph Parker, the man whose message is repent sets himself against his age and will be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. There is but one end for such a man. Off with his head! You better not preach repentance until you've pledged your head to heaven. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see why this is so difficult now? No one's going to have a problem with you for doing good. You need to do good. Everyone loves it when you do good. We need humanitarian people. In fact, can I tell you there's a lot of people that need to learn how to treat one another today? If you don't believe me, just drive down the road a little ways. It won't be long before somebody cuts you off or is unkind to you on the highway. It seems like, you know, even decent people lose sense of direction when they're, you know, there's moral compass on the highway. I don't know. A lot of, there's some people that do drive with, with control and those things, and there are good drivers out there. But boy, the bad ones really stand out, don't they? We don't have to go far to see how people don't know how to treat each other. There's a right and there's a wrong. No one's going to have a problem with you for doing good. Do all the good you want. Do all the good God leads you to. Please don't stop doing good. But it's the moment you take a stand and do what is right. You're going to have more enemies than you can count. And some of them are going to be the closest people to you because they want their way and nobody's going to tell them any different. This is heartbreaking. And we wonder why Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Because all we wanted was for people to come back to God. All we want is for them to return and follow the right way. And we lift up our voice and say, no, don't go that way. And we, we get misunderstood. We get misrepresented. We're blind. All of these things. Well, it fits right with what Jesus said. Some things here, and I'll write this down because I'm out of time. What I want you to notice about these verses in particular. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
we need to understand there is a certain characteristic about a loyal and dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. Number one, he is loyal to the person of Christ. This is where I get the title of my message. For righteousness sake, for my sake. He's loyal to the principles of Christ. Persecuted for righteousness sake. This doesn't mean, and if you want an exposition of this, I would recommend to you Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his treatment of this. He goes into an in-depth exposition of this in a meaningful way, really, and points out that much of what we call suffering for righteousness' sake today is not really suffering for righteousness' sake. It's suffering for a political cause, or it's suffering for this, or it's suffering for that. But it's not what Jesus defined as suffering for righteousness' sake. And if you want the definition, for those who have been with us uh, for these studies, where am I going to point you? I'm going to point you to biblical illustrations that show us the truth of what it is to suffer for righteousness. A person who has this character is a committed follower of Jesus. They've set their hand to the plow. They're not looking back. They've said, He's Lord of my life. I'm going to follow His principles. His principles are righteousness. Two men, I would would draw to your attention by way of illustration. Moses, obviously, is one that you could look at, as we've done in the past. But I want you to consider another man who stood up and prophesied. And this man was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn over to Amos chapter number 2, just briefly. Amos is an interesting man. And he lived in the first half of the 8th century before Christ. He was a prophet, but he wasn't a prophet all of his life. He was not a prophet until God called him from the herd field. He was a herdsman by trade. And God called him to go from the south of Judah, where he was, to leave that and go to the northern tribes of Israel and preach to them and prophesy to them that God's judgment loomed on their doorstep. Amos was a man who lifted up his voice for God. And he gave these messages through chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And he says, you know, he's talking about Moab in chapter number 2, three transgressions of Judah. If you look at verse number 4, he just names them them right down the list. Three transgressions of Israel. Remember, it's the split kingdom, Judah-Israel. Uh, we, we continue down through chapter number 3, and he says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, not for you, not to encourage you. He's spoken against you. There's judgment that looms, O children of Israel, the northern tribes, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. And he goes to describe how they have idolat- gone after idolatry and, and turned their back on the Lord God. And he says, I'm going to put an adversary around you in the land. There's going, to be, there's going to be terrible things that are coming. Testify to the house of Jacob. Hear this word, chapter 40, kind of Bashan, the mountain of Samaria. What do you know biblically in the biblical history of Samaria? This was the, the seat of where Ahab would have his kingdom. Wicked, wicked Ahab. How many things happened against God and against his truth in Samaria? So much so that they were led into into captivity by the Assyrians. Chapter 5, hear this word. Hear ye this word, which I take up against you. Notice this, it's a lamentation. 
They have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. Who wrote that? The weeping prophet did, Jeremiah. We're getting America ahead of myself. Israel's fallen. She's going to rise no more. She's forsaken of heart, none, none, none to raise up. As we look at, at Jeremiah, I'm sorry, at, at Amos here, just preaching, preaching judgment. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Chapter number 6, you're trusting in the mountain of Samaria. There's woe. Woe to be visited. The first person to speak out against Amos. He was a priest of the Lord. Now get this. Here's Amos. He's a preacher from the country. Country preacher coming up. And he's preaching that God's judgment's coming. And this priest is going to stand up and, and put, put Amos in his place. The man's name was Amaziah. You'd think if anybody would know better, Amaziah would know better. He should have been close enough to God to know that what Amos was saying is true. But what did he do? He takes what Amos is saying and he goes tattletales to the king Jeroboam II. And he takes his words to Jeroboam. And if you look at chapter 7 of Amos, this is basically the message in verse 10. Amos chapter 7 and verse number 10. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee. There's conspiracy in the land, O king. In the midst of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all his words. Interesting. Is America able to bear these kind of words if we were to stand up and say, God's judgment is coming? For thus saith Amos, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of, her, out of their own land. Death is looming. Judgment is coming. Also, Amaziah said unto Amos, He's going to turn his words to the preacher now. Oh, thou seer, go. Go back to the countryside where you belong. Flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy. Go, go prophesy to the cows that you're herding. We don't want to hear that here. I wonder how many preachers have been disinvited that maybe, you know, if they're standing for this word and they have an opportunity of, of public speaking somewhere, as I've had privilege to do. And, and I'll tell you, this is concerning. When I stand up and lead Senate in prayer, or I have the opportunity to pray publicly or, or get before any kind of larger audience outside of the church, I always have these kind of things in the back of my mind. This might be the last time they ever ask me to come pray. <laughs> they're going to say, go back to the fields. We don't want that here. That's where we're living. It's no different. And so he says, go back to where he came from. And notice Amos' answer, verse 14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. Look, you misunderstand. You don't have all the facts here. You've answered the matter before you're hearing it, and it's folly to you. He says, I was, I was not a prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. But I was a herdman, gatherer of sycamore fruit. The Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. A call to preach comes from God. And it's inescapable. And a person who's called to preach knows when the Lord has called him to go and take his word. Now today we have his word, and as preachers we expound it, we put it forth, which is what we're doing in Matthew 5 today. And I tell you, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
Not just for any cause you want to name under the sun. Not, not even the bad things that we read about politically happening and all those things. There are Christians suffering the world around because they're standing for the principles of truth. You don't believe that. There's somebody right in our backyard here who's, who has suffered greatly the kind of suffering that I think Jesus is talking about here. He owns a cake shop down in Lakewood. And he's just trying to, to operate his business on his conscience and, and before God. And if you ever want some good cake, maybe for next week. <laughs> we should just go flood the bakery down there, right? Yeah. And so that's just one instance that's close to us. There are so many others. I mean, I could sit down and show you on my radar that I, with the work I do with the prayer caucus, there is there is religious persecution happening all across every corner of our country. It's happening everywhere you look. Christians cannot be silent. They, it's not time to be a doormat. That's not suffering for righteousness sake, becoming somebody's doormat. You stand on the truth. And when they put you to the block, you're willing to stand when no one else will. That's suffering for righteousness because you're suffering for the cause of, of, of what Jesus said we suffered. Well, time, time fleets and escapes me. The character of this follower of Christ. He is loyal. He is loyal to the principles of Christ. Righteousness sake. He is loyal to the person of Christ. For righteousness sake, and the other part of my title this morning for you is for my sake. He goes on to say, and I'll just point this out to you back in our text in Matthew 5. Blessed are ye, verse 11, when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. What are the next words? For my sake. If it's not for Christ, then it doesn't fit what Jesus is saying here. If you're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake, it's for righteousness, for the principles of God's Word that you're suffering the way that you are. It's for Jesus Christ Himself, thinking that He who went before, now I get to walk in His path, and, and I am counted worthy to suffer as He did. This is, a, a, this is a New Testament mentality. In fact, Paul tells us about it when he says, I, I yearn to see the power of God the power of His resurrection. That's wonderful. He arose. He arose. He lives. That's why we're here today. We gather and worship. But the next phrase Paul said was, and the fellowship of His sufferings. So as we close here today, I want to encourage you. I don't know what you're having to put up with. It might be, it might be family. It might be somebody you love more more than anything, apart from Christ. It might be some, it might be, a lot of times it comes from God's people. You have a priest, Amaziah, standing up in Amos' face. He's supposed to be God's man, and he's treating Amos the way he is. When you're being an Amos, and God's people stand up against you, and you're just standing for right, you've got to know you're suffering for the right cause. But if you are, I want to tell you what Jesus said. It's time to start counting your blessings and learning how to rejoice the way Jesus is saying to rejoice here. What can you rejoice in? How, how is there a blessing when everybody's turned against you and the people you love seem to hate you and, and say all kinds of things about you that aren't true and, and misrepresent you and malign you and, and even beat you and, and molest you and, 
and do physical harm to you, sometimes that happens. Hebrews 11. Isaiah was sawn asunder. Go read Fox's book of martyrs. You won't take long before you go, wow, these people know what it is to suffer for righteousness' sake. Do we today? No. And one preacher said he believed that Christians don't see this kind of persecution because uh, they're too much like the world. He's pretty bold to say that. I was pretty bold to repeat it to you. Have we? Have we given our heart over? Or are we willing to say, I'll be poor in spirit, I'll mourn, I'll do all the other beatitudes. And I know that when I do, the response that I'm going to get is not one of favor from the world. But I'm going to have the favor of my Father. And that means more to me than anything this world ever brings. Amen.